4: Chris Broadbent.
5: It was just one of those unreal, special moments that you probably never, ever, ever love again.
1: Jessica Gaines was never fed. It's so obvious that I don't even to
6: say it. How it looked is everything, and ten times more how it felt.
7: Welcome to this special edition of Athletics Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. This is the best of 2022, um, where we just take a few clips and listen to some of the best um, interviews, best parts of the interviews with some of the names from the sport we've spoken to this year, who've spoken to so candidly, honestly, um, and really shed light on uh, on their careers in a way that has never happened before. Um, We're kicking off with Kelly Sutherton, who talks about um, those drug cheats in her event. Blomska and Chernova who were awarded silver and bronze in Beijing Olympics uh, and what Kelly's thoughts are uh, since being upgraded to a medal status there and what her thoughts are on those drug cheats since then?
8: Uh, you we can't really necessarily think about it at the time when you're competing and um, the only time I did and I, I, I kicked myself every time was Beijing her, I knew her and, and Tatiana Blancs Mila Blancs and Chernova were cheating I knew they were we all knew they were and I allowed it to like affect my psyche and what I thought and it really affected my competition on the second day in Beijing at the Olympics and um, that really disappointed me um, and I found some stuff left at the long jump so I gave it in to our team manager I think who handed it then to the uh, relevant authorities and then obviously two days later Blonska's goes out found the drugs test and that's her second so she's a life ban
7: and and found what?
8: What do you mean? found something long time? I found time, some right? vials, like some little vial things that had stuff in. And I don't know if it was a masking agent because a masking agent to cover what they had. Um, so, so for instance, was after the competition in Beijing, the top five were drug tested. So I was fifth. So and um, was all drug tested. You go in, it's blood in your urine. But I went to warm down because it's part of the 4x4 squad. So I went to warm down with my chaperone you have a little person not a little person. somebody They're not little, but they might be. There was a person. Well, you're, you're quite a tall
7: girl, Kelly, so, you know, right, <laughs> okay.
9: little
8: people. So, um, so someone will come with you to watch you or follow you around wherever you go until you, you know, give a sample so you're not doing anything untoward. And uh while I was running around, Leblonkska was running round, but she was running away from her chaperone and trying to hide. It was just so oblivious. And I was like... It was like so oh, obliv so obvious, and I was like, okay, so uh that's that's not suspicious, and then you know two days later, the equipped paper phoned my agent and said, Blunk's is out, you know Lequip always gets stuff first, don't they? So it's like <laughs> they said she's out, so that was the first big doping story of the games um life ban and so and you could just see the nervousness of people in drug testing, like they just look nervous, really nervous. And, you know, you just think, oh, you're, you know, excuse my language, a bunch of Fs and Cs. Like, I've just, you're just affecting my life, but you could, you know, like, what can I, I can't do anything about it until they get caught. If it's now or in 10 years. And obviously one of them was 10, well, eight years later, but worked out 10 years later. So you just thankful that that happened at all because it could have been a chance and I'm sure there's many athletes out there who haven't got what they're due or never get what they're due or never know how good they really are because of people cheating and never been out never got caught because of statute limitation with testing. So um yeah I think I'm quite fortunate. I'm lucky but fortunate. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Cheat's a cheat, whatever. So um yeah. <laughs> but you know what? I was angry at the time. I'm not necessarily angry now. And it's because I was quite bitter after I retired. And it was. And when I think about the people testing, um, the cheating, I actually don't necessarily blame them. It's, it was the regime, the people in and around them. They allowed it to happen. You know, Russia isn't a wealthy country in terms of sport, in, in terms of the athletes do sport to get out of the situation, look after their family, get out of a hole, become, you know, look you know, have a livelihood, have a life. Um So they, they probably had legitimate reasons for why they did it. And then it, if, and some of them probably were cheating and didn't know they were cheating, you know, or you don't, you take this. If you don't, the next person's going to take it and you're out and you're back in the streets kind of thing. And that's a bit dramatic, but you know, it's like a, um, conveyor belt of athletes in Russia, especially women, obviously. There There were talented athletes and, um, they just wanted a better life. I just, so I'm a little bit more, I get it. I don't get it but i get it um Hmm. yeah
7: got a bit more empathy about it these days then yeah
8: yeah 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 Yeah. like you know i don't like it but i i the regime was there for a reason they're not bad people you don't be you're not born a cheat so um you're definitely not born you're not born a cheat um something happens uh the people the environment around you changes and and then they um yeah so a bit more bit more perspective
7: we also spoke to Eddie Doyle, the 400 meter hurdler, um, who represented Team GB at the London 2012 Olympics, and she gave us a very interesting take on um, what the experience was like being in the cauldron of the games at that time.
10: Yeah, well, the lead up to it was very different to the actual being there. So, the, the, like, yeah, it was it was one that it was the it was a chance that you didn't want to miss because it was the one that everyone was talking about. It was it, like all your sponsorship deals were kind of based around it as well like you know kit sponsors and funding it was all about you know making that olympic team and and i'd moved down to bath to train with malcolm arnold and i joined him the end of 2010 after delhi but i was still teaching at that point um and so it was the end of 2011 i actually left my job as a teacher and moved down to bath to train purely you know to train towards commonwealth uh, the olympic games and at that point, Malcolm had a real big squad in there. He had, like, Di Green, who was the current world champion. He had Jack Green, Andy Posey, Lawrence Clark, all these kind of youngsters. He had Natasha Danvers in the hurdles as well, who'd, who'd obviously won bronze in, in Beijing. So I was kind of going down there and, and putting myself in where I felt was the best environment to, to make that team. And and everything went really well. Like, my training went really well. Just being in there, being close to Malcolm was really useful. I think I got the qualifying standard fairly early on in the season, and then it was just a case of going to trials and finishing top two, which again was pretty straightforward because it was only myself and Perry that had done the qualifying standard. So there wasn't really anybody that would kind of upset it. And and the only one that potentially could have got it would have been Megan Beasley. And bar Megan, there wasn't really anybody else, so they would still be able to take three of us. So and, and so I finished second at the trials and that was it. It was it was all very straightforward. And um Di had won, Jack had been second. Andy Pau won. one Lawrence had been second so basically our whole squad had had done the job and made the team so it was a really kind of positive feeling afterwards but when I got to Olympics it was well it was totally and utterly overwhelming it was a really horrible experience (laughs) you know the whole build-up would have been great but when I got there it was just horrible I just felt really out of place I felt a bit like I'd got in there by accident you know just because it was it was the it was the fact it was a home games, I think, because it was like mm. so much attention on, on, on the GB athletes. And, and that's the thing, even if you weren't like, even if you weren't somebody who was expecting to get a medal, like you were still getting the same cheers and the same support as like Jess Ennis and, and Greg and all those guys that won the medal. So, you know, I remember stepping out onto the track and just thinking i don't want to be here like i just there's, there's too many people like expecting things off me and and i really let the occasion kind of get on top of me and I remember after my race just thinking i don't i don't know if this is for me like that's the biggest stage to compete on and, and i didn't like that you know i felt really uncomfortable um and so well, yeah, yeah you, you felt a, like that could be it for you i just i just don't i'm not sure yeah,
7: to this anymore, really yeah,
10: I, I, yeah. And I and i had to really kind of understand what what the hell happened like and and I, I must have given something away when I did an article after the games. I don't know if I'd said something because a, a psychologist, a guy called Mike Cunningham, had contacted me and said, "Look, um, I read about your experience at the Olympics. Would you know? Do you want to just chat?" And I kind of worked with sports psychologists before, and I was kind of. <laughs> they were fine like I I didn't really I I, I could take, take it or leave it I never really felt I ever needed a sports psychologist and it was always kind of at that stage um, you know back back then it was kind of like oh well, you only need them if you're sort of mentally you know weak and you know if you've got a strong mindset you don't need a sports psychologist so I, I I, never really kind of ventured too deep into it and I'd always kind of competed quite well so I never thought I needed one but I thought I'm nothing to lose I'm going to ch- talk to this guy and um and he was brilliant he really I, I mean I still talked to him I talked to him throughout my whole career I still spoke to him after i retired. He's a really good guy to chat to and um we kind of just simplified it all I and mean, was kind of like why do you do it you know and who are you doing it for and and we kind of came to an understanding of what's what's the most useful way of thinking about how you run and, and and what's not useful and um and yeah I kind of reassessed things I I kind of went back to almost like the basics of why I did athletics. And it was back, you know, thinking back to when I joined Batrivi, thinking back to when I did it when I was younger, it was just like, yeah, you just enjoy doing it. You just have fun doing it. Like, you know, you need to kind of get that back. And um, it was kind of, 2012 was a real turning point, I think, mentally for me as an athlete. It was about kind of addressing, you know, the mindset and what's going on in your head when you're standing on that start line, what's going on in your head when you're training. Um, Actually, you need to kind of work on that as much as you need to work on the physical side of it.
7: I say with Olympic experiences, we talked with Andy Turner, who broke through uh, in an Olympic year for Athens 2004, and he felt a little bit nervous about it, and he was um, quite revealing about that um, in our interview.
11: It was terrifying. I mean, I went to, um, that year, I went to a race for England in in Zombathly in Hungary, and I remember I dropped my best, personal best from like 13.8 down to 13.4 in one race and qualified for the Olympics, and I was like... I've just qualified for the Olympics. Can't believe it. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, I picked up an injury my Achilles, um, which meant I didn't train for kind of two months. I was trying to do bits and pieces, but I wasn't getting a full, you know, full session in. And I went to the doctor, who who put an injection around the area, which managed to fix it. And then my first session back, I tore my quad, and that was the day before leaving for the holding camp. So again, I'm thinking at this point. All I want to do is become an Olympian, go to, you know, go to Athens, get on the start line and, and try and finish the race. That was that was my target. And, you know, fortunately, I managed to do that. But I was in I was in no shape and, you know, I wasn't going to I wasn't going to challenge anybody then anyway. I wasn't I wasn't good enough. But, you know, I just wanted to I just wanted to finish the race. That was my goal uh, in Athens, basically.
9: OK, OK. What, what was
7: it? What was the whole experience like? I mean, what did you, what did you take from it? I mean, it was a. Suddenly, you've gone from not being in the GB team to being in a team with like <laughs> real icons. Like at the time, I guess, like Paul the Radcliffe, Steve Backley, Kelly. Kelly Holmes, Denise Lewis, all these people. Like, and, and you're there thinking, What, 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 what were you thinking?
11: <laughs> I felt really out of place, if I'm honest. You know, I had the Olympic kit on, and I, I, I just didn't feel like I deserved to be there. I, I just felt like just some little kid who fluked his way onto the team you know, got all these big named athletes and I'm walking around the village and I'm seeing famous people everywhere and, you know, all these, all these amazing athletes and I just, I just felt like, how am I here? Why am I here? You know, I don't I don't, I didn't feel like I, I was, I was at where I should be. Um, but, you know, obviously it was just, it was an amazing experience just to be there and I suppose, in a way, it's good to, it's good to kind of go to these championships, get thrown at the deep end and it's sink or swim. You've got to kind of, you've got to compete or are you going to bottle it and you know my, my body held me back but you know I think it, it made me stronger over the next couple of years to have that experience of being in such a huge competition.
7: Off the track now but no less dramatic we spoke with the uh, head coach of Team GB at the from the London 2012 Olympics and 10 years on from that um, we spoke to Charles Vancomenie about some of the uh, issues he faced uh, kicking off with um, the Plastic Brits um, discussion around the time of uh, athletes church and tribes in the country uh, that were being questioned on their nationality going into the Games
1: well first of all um, I do understand the I do understand the sentiment um, uh, but there was nothing I can do because Uh, it's quite simple everyone with a British passport uh, making the qualifying mark and and performing well at the trials is qualified this is this is a a very transparent um, qualifying procedure process Mm. Um, uh, I if people have the impression that I go over the globe with a microscope and finding people with a British passport then I have to disappoint them um it's not the case but but it, it can happen any day that you're in a, in the office and and you get an email from someone with a Cuban background but also a British passport who said how, how do I qualify for the team and then I just sent the qualifying standards and the qualifying procedure like I would do with any athlete um, and it, it 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 would not even hold in, in court if you would say I don't like you because because you're not British enough. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's something. Uh, it's a fact of life. And uh, and um, uh, it, uh, we definitely did not uh, uh, search actively like like countries like Qatar or mm. or Turkey have been doing over the last decade or so. Um, never, not even one
7: time. Okay, okay. The other one, the other, other, another story was, the uh, will call it Fatgate, and that was, uh, where a not-too-subtle claim that, you know, a leading coach, uh, accused by Jess Ennis's coach, Tony Michello, was, Tony Michello was saying that, uh, uh, a leading coach said she was overweight. Um, what was your version of events on that one, Charles? Well,
1: I'll give you my version, but, um, um, most importantly, is that Tony in the public domain recently has has admitted that it was nonsense. So, um, so my version only <laughs> can be that it's nonsense. Yeah. What happened is um, after I think it was after Daegu, probably Daegu, yeah, Daegu. The, the world champions 2011 now, you know as, as a head coach you sit with the most important athletes and coaches you review the year and one of the questions I asked was um, 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 something like like how, what were you as fit as you were 12 months ago mm. and and it's a, it's a normal question to ask to any athlete um, and then um, Tony Thought it was smart to keep um, it his, to his, his, his. his um, how do you say this? His, uh, anyway, he, he went. He went with this um, um, to the press, and 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 made it a different line. Uh, high ranked official uh, accuses at of being fat. Mm. It was just um, destructive. It, it didn't help anything. It, it took a lot of my time because I I had to explain uh, uh, to the press that um, things were differently and blah, blah, blah. Uh, a lot of those distractions. Uh, doesn't serve any purpose.
7: Okay, okay. Fair enough, yeah. Uh, and, and
1: Obviously, it- obviously, Cassica Anders was never fed. Let, yes. let, let, it's so obvious that I don't even should say it. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
7: Um. Uh, did it affect your relationship with Jess? This or was it still a good relationship there? No. No.
1: No. Never. But mm. it, 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 it I, uh, Tony and myself had a tense relationship. Mm. Uh, uh. It appeared in many, many occasions. Um. But with Jess, everything was always fine. At least very level-headed. Um. Mm. Very focused on what you should focus on, and also very nice person.
10: Play for free at
0: LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
7: We always had a great call with uh, a great chat with Chris Thompson, the um, European 10,000-meter silver medalist, but much more than that. Um, he's a bit of an icon in the distance-running arena. And we spoke to him about the moments where it was uh, during the pandemic. Uh, he'd become a father that week. Um and he had his hand run over in a crazy week but he also qualified for the Olympic Games um, when he uh, won the trials at Kew uh, to get to Tokyo 2020 and he just told us in, in fantastic detail about, uh, about that whole experience
2: I,
6: I'd rank it in terms of so, 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 so sport and life tend to be separate I kind of my career in sport and my life Things in life, you know, getting married is one thing and going to Olympics is is separate. And and so when I think about my greatest sporting achievement, my mind immediately goes to when I nailed it and I ran the fastest race I could or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so but with Q, it was this. The by far the best moment of my life, because it was this blend of life. And sport and the challenge and everything just colliding into this into this one moment because I was running as a da- as a new dad and anyone that becomes a parent for the first time five days after that happens you're still pinching yourself you're still pinching yourself even when they're probably eighteen I don't know but it's he's not quite that age yet but it, you're just in this weird mindset of wow like and but I've got to run a marathon. Like you say, I've got a bust up hand. I've trained hard for this. Mm-hmm. Like and I was in good shape, but I've got to do it because I'm exhausted. There was just it it honestly felt like the reason it was so amazing is because I honestly deep down, if I'm honest, didn't think it was possible. I thought I felt like did I physically feel like I could do it? Yeah. Did I feel like I was in that kind of shape? Yeah. I mean, me and Alan thought I was in around two nine shape, maybe even two eight on a good day, so the fitness was there, but because of the way the week was panning out with everything, the way all these other things had been going on in my life, it just felt like it was just gonna be a step too far emotionally for me to pull it off um and so it it ranks number one when it comes to life experiences um and it's and it's the fact that it's partly sport related with going to Olympics and it's becoming a dad and it's to do with it. there's injuries. And it's just got a bit of everything when it comes to that emotion. Whereas every other moment in my life, it's, it's you know, winning the European medal. That's all about the running, getting married. That's all about my wife. And it's like those moments tend to be quite singular. But this was just a collision of I didn't know what to do with myself when I finished the race all I could think about I want to go see my boy but I'm going to the Olympics and I, I just I didn't know what to do with myself I remember taking myself off for a moment and just going I, I I, don't I don't know what just happened there how how just in complete disbelief and I've never had that emotion before you know crossing the line when I won my silver medal the Europeans it was like this there was a lot of relief in there there's a lot of happiness but I've never had that feeling of how I don't I, I I don't know how I've done that I just just I just couldn't get my head around it and I was just I was just driving back on my uh, to to go home because obviously Gemma was at home she watched the race on the TV she didn't come in just just in a just if I could bottle that feeling and then going in and seeing Gemma and seeing my boy just if I could bottle it then I'd be a very rich man just it's just a again it's like the amount of the amount of self-talking you have to do to yourself to keep yourself believing it's possible and keep doing the things you need to do and even when you're up at three in the morning two days out from a marathon because he's crying not getting stressed out or worried and going look enjoy the fact you're a dad yeah you've got a race but just embrace the ride in those moments, it's, um, you almost, almost, want. there's no point turning up, I'll just leave the race, I'll just focus on him, Um, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, (laughs) I don't know, I just, it's just one of those things that I would never, I never, I've not not been one to do it, and I don't think I ever will ever not try, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because you never know, you just don't know, I remember someone saying to me years ago, saying, you just never know where you're going to end up, all you can do is just keep your head down, do the best you can with what's in front of you. And you could, and when you pop your head up, you might just surprise yourself how far you've come or what's going on. But it's a very long way of explaining it, but it's just, it's so impossible to put into words because it, I am, it, 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 how it looked is everything. And 10 times more, how it felt. It just felt just, I don't see how it can be topped. You know, someone, if I won an Olympic gold medal tomorrow, it's a complete. It's different. It's just not mm. the same. It's just, you know, if I maybe if I won an Olympic medal and the birth of my second child was that week, <laughs> I don't know. I'll give it a go.
7: We also talked with Craig Pickering, the European 60 meters silver medalist uh, indoors, uh, and he spoke about um, a time in his career when he was uh, positioned really as the good guy against the bad guy, Dwayne Chambers, who was who was uh, making a comeback from a drug ban. Um, and how that uh, became quite a big issue how, at the time, um, and how we deal with that now.
13: Yeah, so I think like it's that spanned that whole thing spanned a few seasons. So I think Dwayne initially came back in 2006, and like I wasn't involved in the relay team then, but there was that incident where Dwayne ran the relay final at the European Championships, and Darren Campbell refused to celebrate with him, and then. I think Dwayne took a step away from sport for a couple of years to try some other things, and then he came back in 2008. I think that's when he sort of got drawn into into that a little bit. Um, and yeah, then 2009 again. Um, I think, yeah, my my position is that if you've my position then was if you fail a drug test, for the things that he failed drug tests for. You should probably be banned for life because one, you've p- people that do that kind of systematic doping. They know what they're doing the whole time they're doing it, so they're, they're willingly defrauding people. Um, and then the advantages you get from doping like that, I don't think they disappear during the two to four years of a of a ban. I think they're they're present. So yeah, that was that was my position then. Um, and so yeah, I think somebody asked me. One of the journalists asked me. Do you think Dwayne Chambers should be allowed back to run? I think I said no, and then which was which was my opinion. And then obviously, that gets then asked Dwayne like that's replayed to Dwayne, and then you get his opinion, and then Dwayne's opinions then replayed back to me, and it just sort of escalates from there. Um, and to be fair, in 2009, he was substantially better than than me. Like he, he shouldn't be. He, he, I'm sure he wasn't worried about what I was thinking about him. Um, the European doors in the semi final. He broke the European record, I remember, ran 6.42. I was in that race, that was quite far back, I think around 6, 6.59 or 6.60, something like that, and, yeah, he, that's, he just destroyed me in that race and then obviously won the final for the next day. Um, and, yeah, if, if I was to have that time again, I probably just wouldn't get drawn into it because there's no, there's no, from my perspective, there's no positives that came out of that. It just probably made him more determined to beat me and put the pressure on me a little bit more.
7: Do you th- i mean I mean do you think it's almost a to ask this. do you think there was an element of race about that as well about because you were a, a white man in the sprint as well was there an element of race going on there at all
13: to stir I, mean, controversy? I i hope not hmm. yeah i mean yeah no i hope not i mean like that's a question the the whole race question i get asked, asked quite a lot anyway in terms of like hmm. it's, it's reasonably common to have a high level um white sprinter um I've never I never really spent much time thinking about, it, to be honest. So, yeah, I don't know. I hope that wasn't one of the one of the motivators of it. Certainly, from from my side, that didn't come to my thinking at all. So, yeah, no, I hope I hope not.
7: Of course, of course, yeah, of course. Um, and um, do you ha- do, what was your relationship? Do you have a relationship with Dwayne? At all? did you have a relationship at the time, or did you ex- did you communicate? At all no,
13: I've never, to, I've never had do with him. Like I say, um, like I, after you won the Europeans. In 2009, I did go to him and say, like, fair play, like you've you've run really well here. There's, like, I appreciate your, your talent. Apologise if, like, obviously I've said some things which probably were quite hurtful to you, so I apologise for that. And um, yeah, he, he apologised to me as well. But uh, yeah, I'd say we we had no relationship. Like we yeah we had no relationship after that.
9: Same
7: with rivalries, but more in house now. We also talked with. Uh, former 400-metre hurdles world champion, Di Green, uh, and how how he got on in training with his rival, um, and training partner, Reese Williams, and, and how that dynamic
3: worked. he's a couple of years older than me. We joined we at, with Benke together and then moved to Malcolm together as well. We didn't really race against each other when we were in Benke's group, but then obviously with Malcolm we both raced uh, a lot. It's probably the best training partner I ever had because we never spoke. We literally never spoke to each other <laughs> at training. Uh, I, I would, you know, I would say it was his issue uh, that he was an older athlete. And I was just the young pretender coming through. And it was his way of dealing with it that he didn't really want to chat and be friends, which is fine because you know, as I touched on, I'm not really the most talkative type anyway. So we would all talk to each other other people in the group, but we would never chat to each other, We would never like exchange pleasantries. The only time we spoke to each other was, uh, are you ready for this rep? Yeah. OK. Three, two, one, go. That was literally it. Uh, that's all. We'd really speak to each other and, uh, and, I, and I can understand like where he's coming from because he's trying to be the best in, you know, best in the group, best in South Wales. And I'm, you know, I have to keep him behind me. So it was great from my point of view that I didn't want to lose an instrument in every training session we did, but ultimately my ambitions, went above and beyond where he was at that moment because I was running a bit faster. So I was aiming to try and be one of the best in the world. And he was obviously still just trying to aim to beat me, which isn't a bad thing because I was running such fast times, but I was less bothered by whatever he was doing, but he always kept me honest in training. Um, so in terms of like, yeah, keeping me straight and on the straight and narrow, he was fantastic to be around great professional in that regard. Um, and then in terms of like pure ability, we had like Jack Green join the group around that time, and you know Reese went from beating me in training, to so then Jack was beating Reese uh, and me, and then uh, Nathan Wood would also join the group then a few years later, and then Nathan went one step further and would beat Jack and Reese and myself on everything. Uh, so Nathan was like insanely talented. It's a shame that he had Achilles issues because, yeah, you, you see some of the work that he could do. Um, was incredible and i have to say that i would never i would very rarely be the best at a training session apart from the hurdle session so every week we did a hurdle session we did two runs to hurdle 10 every week from down onwards all through the year and that was the only session that i would be the best in the group at every week i would always be the best um, run the fastest time every time uh, without fail but if we did 150s 250s 300 i would not be at the front whatever i whatever, Whatever other sessions they were, I was never at the front because I was never as good on the flat as the other guys. But when it came to the hurdles, I could put it together really well every time, uh, which is surprising for people to learn. I was a very average trainer, but really good when it came to the hurdles, which is, I guess, the right way around.
10: (laughs) With lucky landslots,
0: you can get lucky just about anywhere.
4: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
10: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps)
11: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that
4: add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
10: Play for
0: free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
7: One of the most moving interviews we had this year was with um, Olympic 400-meter fourth placer Donna Fraser, who recovered from uh, breast cancer, uh, had a mastectomy, and came back to the sport. in 2012 um to try and earn a place at the fifth olympics and she spoke we had a moment really and she spoke in a wonderfully uh, candid way um from the heart uh, about that um, that time in her life
0: um and then of course 2 years later i thought right okay well i'm okay let me get hmm. dust off my spikes and make a comeback and and end on my own terms, uh, and that's what I decided to do. And it was just bizarre the reception I got from. Why are you? Why are you coming out of retirement? What? What's wrong with you? Who wants to come back to four hundred meters? I'm like, well, you don't know the reasons. I know the reasons why. Mm, um, mm. A, a, and it, it was just really nice to be back and being in the training group again and having fun. It, it was almost like I was reliving being 8 years old again uh, at primary yeah. school just enjoying it again
11: yeah
7: so like you say, you had you had a crack at London 2012 didn't you just uh, for i mean was it real was it ever realistic you think you might make no. it or was it no okay it,
0: it 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 wasn't it but anything is possible as I was always would always tell me but i knew deep down that was a big ask i was i was much older i'd missed a huge chunk of training um but it was more for me to say goodbye properly and it was just crazy the the um cause i'm getting emotional now the reception i got that day i couldn't have asked for anything better
7: what was this the yeah, actual comeback race or are or, you meaning tr- yeah
0: yeah the um the trials it was the trials for 2012 Mm -hmm. and and that morning the story came out um about the breast cancer and all of that so everyone who knew me knew why I was there and to get a standing ovation was like Mm. this is I just it blew me away I thought how the hell am I going to get around this 400 (laughs) in one piece it was I it was just nice it was just nice to get recognized that all those years that I'd given to the sport, oh God, I didn't even think I'd be like this. <laughs> um,
10: yeah, and and just being able to say goodbye on my terms was just
0: just a nice closing to that chapter.
7: Mm, more appropriate for you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, you you you're hugely admired for it as well. <laughs>
0: God, I can't believe I'm crying. But he's just remembering standing on that line thinking, oh, my gosh, this is just, this is my family.
7: Talking about Comebacks, we also spoke with Hayley Yelling, who was a a two-time European cross-country gold medalist. Uh, And on one of those occasions, she came out of retirement in 2009 to win in Dublin. And she talked us through that whole experience.
9: And I remember I didn't do any any cross-country races apart from the trial in Liverpool. And I did say to my friends, I've got my two non-running friends to come with me. And I said, oh, can you just come up to Liverpool for the weekend with me? It'll be a bit of a laugh. I'm going to do this race, but, you know, let's just see how I go. I don't know how I'll do, but just come and watch because I don't want to make an absolute idiot of myself. I'd rather have somebody there. Mm. <laughs> so they did. They came for the weekend and they were like, yeah. yeah. And then we were, then, then I actually couldn't believe that I won the trial. Yeah. yeah so,
2: wow. wow.
7: How, what do you put that down to? Were you just, just being fresh by being away from the sport for a bit?
9: Probably just more of a relaxed. Repro- yes. I was still training. I was still training because I was doing other, other things. I was doing a bit cycling, a bit swimming. I was still running, but I wasn't doing the, the massive sessions. Um, And I, yeah I didn't race and I just thought okay I'm just gonna just gonna see may as well because I actually felt okay um yeah so I remember that feeling great on that day
7: great right, okay so off you went to Dublin then <laughs> yeah um for the European cross in 2009 and you won it I did and that was, <laughs> <laughs> that did, did the same two friends come with you you're lucky masters no no
9: they no, no, didn't know <laughs> Yeah, they're my lucky mascots. No, they didn't come.
7: (laughs) What do you remember about that race then? I mean, were you surprised to win it?
9: I was definitely surprised to win it. But I think I had a a nice feeling on the warm up. I thought, actually, I feel quite nice, feel good, feel fresh and relaxed. Sometimes you don't, you feel heavy and awful. Um, And I just thought, do you know what? I'm going to leg it and see how long I can keep up Um, because I may as well I've got nothing to lose Um, so that's exactly what I did and I I actually thought everyone would would overtake me or I didn't actually think I'd stay in front
7: We also spoke to uh, one of the country's leading sprinters of of modern times that was Jason Gardner Uh, and his um, significant moment of his career was when he teamed up with uh, Marlon Devonish Darryn Campbell and Mark francis to famously win gold at the Athens Olympics, and he, he talked through that um, the magic of that night in uh, in a wonderful way um, with us on this episode.
12: So we learned from those mistakes, and we got that in Athens. And we also knew that our, we knew we couldn't match the Americans, than for that speed, they won five of the individual six medals available. I think um, Amy Cullu, which got silver in the 200 meters. Um, for Portugal so um but we knew we put pressure on them on the changeovers we've got a fighting chance and we knew where the pressure point would be we we we, you know Darren is, is like a he's like a beast stirring things up and he was kind of he was always he got on with Americans like Morris Green and stuff like that Mark and me didn't um and you know he would get insight and bring intel back into the group but we knew that they didn't want kobe miller as their favoured choice again you've got these sprint groups and you know they're very powerful mm. the john smith group against the trevor graham group and um we knew that kobe didn't have an individual medal from the um olympics so we knew that he was probably feeling that like he's got to prove his place the um Justin Gatlin, Morris Green, Sean Crawford around the 100 and 200 metres, picked up a bag of medals. But we also knew there might be a bit of fatigue in their team. We also knew that they don't do go out to win. They want to go out and put a show on and maybe break a world record. And in, in turn, that brings an element of risk. So we knew that, OK, if we can pressure them to make a mistake on their changeover two. We've got a fighting chance and my goal was to make sure I could give Mark Lewis Francis confidence of um, knowing we're not, you know, two metres down on the first leg. Because that's what Sh- um, Sean Crawford, who I beat to win the World Indoors early in the year, was going to put on me. And that kind of frustrates me that I beat him in the World Indoors before I had the surgery. And then suddenly he's got two, you know, two metre kind of um, advantage on me as we go into the summer. Um, and he won the Olympics 200 metres. Yeah, so um, uh, Darren and myself had the most perfect changeovers, uh, which, you know, that's what it's all about. Practice makes perfect. Boom. And Darren's hamstring held out for the team as he changed into Marlon. And that, again, it was like poetry in motion. I couldn't see it at the time, but the Americans made a mistake. And that mistake cost them heavily because Martin Lewis Francis gets a baton from Marlon. Again, another sublime changeover. Ahead of Morris Green by you know clear distance, and as Morris Green closes Mark down, you know to a blanket finish, that Chester marks dipped ahead of yeah. Morris by one hundredth of a second, and it was just honestly, you couldn't have written a better script. We we genuinely believed we were going to win. We genuinely believed that in that the America's will make a mistake where they did and darren had given mark lewis francis the belief that we're going to give him the about the lead and he's going to hold off morris screen. it came true i could i could bottle that energy and feeling that evening um, and sell it i'd be a rich guy someone
7: who's been connected with the sport for many years is jason henderson he's the editor of athletics week or certainly has been for the thick end of 25 years um and he talked to talked through us about this time uh, working at the magazine um, and particularly about athletes who he'd really enjoyed speaking to in that time
14: i think lots of the athletes from my early days at the magazine were were really interesting they they weren't too careful in what they said in a good way i think i think more recently we see athletes getting a lot being a lot more cagey for example if they're going to do a competition in a few weeks time they're they're kind of told not to talk about it until it's officially announced and all this kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, you go back 20, 30 years, the athletes just, they just mentioned it, you know, if they were doing a competition in a few weeks time, they just, they just mention it. So, so a lot of the athletes during my early years, like Catherine Mary, Darren Campbell, Steve Backley, I mean, they've all gone on to have successful careers in the media. And I think that's because they're interesting. They're articulate, you know, for for me, it's no, it's no surprise really. That they've gone on to be uh, gone on to be good in the media. You and Thomas is another another great example. You know, just just colourful colourful examples. I think I noticed on Instagram this this week actually in the last few days uh, some of the the old four by four hundred meter guys have got together for a for a night out. Uh, Roger Black, who's another another great guy. You know, he comes from a yeah. slightly different era, dare I say, and um, you know just just talks to you really honestly, really interesting. Uh, Jamie Bolsch as well, who was on the same night out, you know, just just good, interesting, colourful characters. Um, poss- possibly my all time favourites is the Dick Astley, Dean Macy, yeah. who, who every time I would I rang him up to interview him. He, he was just he would watch. He was what journalists would describe as good value. <laughs> um, if, if you would have to bleep, you would have to bleep out all the swear words. <laughs> But if you took them all out, he would just he would be just coming out with these tremendous uh, lines. I think I spoke to him once when he was he was walking he was walking in a field or his garden or something, and he had like a some some dog like a pit bull terrier that started attacking him as we were talking. <laughs> was literally attacking his leg or so. He, he was just he was just just uh, crazy, but so entertaining. And again, he's gone on to be a success. Unfortunately, not in the world of athletics. I think athletics should maybe try and use him more. Because he's made an, made a real name for himself in angling or fishing. Mm. He's been on on angling television programs and he's always in the angling magazines and and stuff like that. So so yeah, he's uh, possibly my all time favorite athlete when it comes to comes to doing interviews. But yeah, there's so many so many. Chris Rawlinson, the 400 meter hurdler as well. I, I was I quite like talking to him. He he would always give give some good interviews. And then, you know, ath- athletes from uh, from the current era as well. I mean, there's there's lots of great, nice athletes around. I mean, someone someone like Dean Asher Smith, she she's not massively accessible these days. You know, she she's she's such she's so high profile, you can't just easily get hold of her to do an interview. But when she does do stuff, you know, she's got she's such a character, she's so bubbly. It sounds like a bit of a cliche, but her, her laugh is so infectious. You know, she, she's. I mean, some of the some of the current athletes like Dina are are, uh, are great, really. um It's a shame that we don't get quite as much access to them as as we may be used to 20 or 30 years ago. But that's just a sign of the times, really. I guess one of the more colourful characters
7: in the last uh, 20 years has been Jo mersch who uh, off track has done some modelling and also some singing as well. But she talked about, but athletics was her real passion, uh, and she talked about the difficulty that many athletes face. Uh, when they get to the end of the road and they they had to call time in their career and how she, what that moment was like for her.
2: But then I ended up getting Achilles pain and I couldn't Mm. shake the Achilles. And then I just made a really tough decision. And I was working by then. I was working in the marketing and commercial team for UK Athletics. And I remember finally saying, OK, that's it. You know, um, to say those words, I'm retiring as like ask any athlete Chris it's the worst thing that can ever come out of their mouth like I'm retiring because it's not like you want to retire but your body's retiring from you my body was giving up on me I didn't mentally want to give up but my body was saying no I can't do anymore and I remember half believing it and thinking oh I could go back and I remember having to get a job you know like get a job I was I was living on my own by then and um I remember working for a, a, a marketing firm and I was having to I was trying to secretly get back by myself after telling people, you know, I, I was finished. But I was waking up doing an hour's run at like five thirty in the morning, getting into the office for nine, leaving the office at six thirty and then going for another run, like eating my dinner at ten thirty. And then I just thought this is ridiculous. Like I I can't do that. I'd come off lottery funding. You know, can I just say um, Thank you, Lottery. Thank you, Adidas, because um, without that, you know, like I look at, I look in New Zealand, like I'm here in New Zealand, and so many athletes don't get funding. They're holding down nine to five jobs, and they are performing so well. So we are, as a nation in the UK, extremely lucky to get all of the funding that we get, because you come out here to New Zealand, you know, and we're so far away, they have to get enough money to go and travel to do races abroad and it's I've seen some athletes you know they're holding down big jobs in order for them to realize their dream so it's completely different and I realized I I just needed to get a job so I I moved to Birmingham and started working for UK athletics and I remember watching the indoor well being part of the marketing team um, for the um, Birmingham Grand Prix I remember watching Marilyn Okoro run in that 800 and um, I was watching it, you know, all suited and booted. And then I just watched and heard the gun go off and then ran to the toilets and burst into tears because I just thought I'm not ready to retire. Like this is killing me. I'm not over it. I'm not over this. And I remember just spending about 10 minutes in the toilet, absolutely sobbing my heart out, feeling like i still wanted to be out there it took a long time for me to yeah for me to let go
7: we also had a great chat with uh, liz mccolgan liz has obviously had a tremendous career as a world champion uh commonwealth champion winner of numerous uh, major marathons but she she really um uh she, she really spoke uh uh such a heartwarming way about her daughter's success this year, Ailish who of course followed in Lizzie's footsteps by winning Commonwealth 10,000 metre gold in Birmingham and she told us about it, what it was like to to be not only Ailish's uh, coach but also her mother and what it was like to see Edge following in her footsteps
5: You know going into the race I said to her you know if you run the right race you know you can win it. I said but it has to be the perfect race for to do that and and, and for that For her to win it, normally, like, you know, a Kenyan will always put a burst in. And normally, Aayla, she'll always just let them go. And I says, you know, if, you know, you've got anything to do here, whenever they do a move, you've got to cover it. And that's the thing that she did different at the Commonwealth Games. She actually made the effort. Although she took the pace out and we wanted an honest pace, it wasn't like a blistering fast pace, it was an honest pace that, you know, a few people could run at. Um, her, her, the reason she won is because she never once let them go away from her. You know, if they made a the move, she went, no matter what she went. And um, and that, as soon as I saw that from, like, I think I saw the first move, they moved about, oh, about, I think it was about six laps out. And I thought, my I just sat up. I thought, oh, someone's different happening here. Cause normally the gap will go and Neil will let them go and I and I I, mm. I just actually I actually stood up for my thing and I moved away from people and I went and stood um, in the foyer because I thought There's something happening here and I could see it early on and then um, you know I I looked at the girl that was like sh- sort of looked uncomfortable and I thought I think you know I definitely want silver or gold here and then you know the the Kenyan girl fell off completely and I thought silver or gold silver or gold but you could just see how she wasn't letting it go, and you know it could have been a toss of a hat at the end of the day like who you know who won it but she just looked a different athlete with a different mindset and she wanted it more than anybody and i don't know i don't know where she what what her thought process i've not even really talked to her about like why it wasn't so important for her to get a medal at the commonwealth games but um you know I thought I thought for me it was the best I've ever seen her run best I've ever seen her compete and for me it was just an honor to be there and to actually see like because a if anybody's followed Ailish's career she's had a lot of ups and downs you know she's yeah. trained really hard she's had, she's got seven screws in her foot from steeplechasing uh we had to move you know more or less careers really she went from steeplechasing to running flat um you know she's had a lot of negativity about. You know, people thinking she, you know, she she like, she wasn't going to make um a good distance runner on the flat, um you know she's always had to fight for her way, and I think for me all coming together on that night was just so special, and for her to have that night where everybody in the stadium was shouting for her, I mean the, it was so noisy, it was unbelievable, and for me to be actually able there to see her do it, not only as a coach but as her mother and all of that. It was just one of those unreal, special moments that you probably never, ever, ever love again.
7: Name is Scottish athletes. We t- talked with uh, Lindsey Sharp, and Lindsey has a uh, has been a, a European um, gold medalist, Commonwealth silver medalist at 800 metres, and um, she also got embroiled um, in the controversy around uh, transgender athletes taking part in the games, and she talked about how that had uh, impacted her both at the Rio Olympics. Um, in 2016 and how she feels or where she feels the sport is now uh in terms of that uh, issue
15: in in my opinion it was taken out of context there was like one small bit that if you watched on its own on its own it was like me crying about finishing six in the olympics was how it was almost taken as um and yeah it's just like you know especially on twitter like there's just some people that you can't you can't win with and i i thought i was very careful how i spoke about it um, but yeah, it kind of blew up from there.
7: <laughs> so are y- you're not on Twitter now. Is that is that is that directly related to that?
15: Um, not directly related. I don't know. I just think it's it became a really negative place. Hmm. Um, there was a time when it first started that it was great and you could interact with people, and like everyone was and you know, it was fun. And I just think like more and more over time, it just became like people said what they would never say in person. Um. And I got some really serious like tweets and about like, like threatening my family and threatening me and like never come to South Africa because like we'll kill you or whatever. And it was just like I didn't need to. It got to the point it was hard to. My my go to like thing would be just don't read them, but it got to the point where it was hard to avoid. Um, and I was just like, I don't need this in my life. Like it was yeah. just I didn't need it at all.
7: Do you have any thoughts on the, on the, on the rules that have evolved since then? Do you have any thoughts on that since 2019? Is that a positive step? Are we, are we there yet or not?
9: It's
15: so difficult. I think it's an issue that's just going to keep going on. Um, and I think that the thing is, it's so much more than sport. Hmm. It's like a way bigger issue than who can and who can't compete in sport.
9: Um and I think we are in
15: a better place, but other people's opinions will be completely different to that. And that's that's the issue, is it's such a contentious topic. Um and now we're kind of at the point where it's different in some events than it is in others. Um, and for me, I feel like it needs to be the same across the board. Um, but it's what they've done is based on the science. Um, but I think a lot of people struggle to understand how someone can be classified as something in terms of one event, but something else in terms of another. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's still like a long way to go. Um, and I, I do think this the issue is just is not going to go away. It's going to keep. It's going to keep changing and it's going to keep sort of like evolving as people's opinions, understandings, beliefs change over time.
7: Hmm. Yeah, much further back, we had a great chat with, um, well, renowned commentator now, uh, but also. Uh, very successful endurance runner, particularly around the cross country, Tim Hutchings, and he took us, took us right back to the late 70s and um, right back to old school training, what it was like training at Crystal Palace under uh, Frank Horwell, uh, which was very illuminating.
4: Um, it was it was fantastic because I was talking a few minutes ago about how it's a very soul, not soulless, it's a very lonely pursuit, very often being a middle or long distance runner. But actually, those sessions between the age of about 15, 16 and I don't know when was I with Frank Tulsa? About twenty-seven. Uh, were well, great for camaraderie in terms of going up to the palace and doing sessions with massive squads. Kids would come up from all over the country, certainly from the bottom half of the country, a lot from the southwest. Would drive up to Crystal Palace on a Sunday morning. Oh, God knows what time those kids left. They must have left at five in the morning. Drive to Crystal <clears throat> Palace. We'd train all day, get home at about five in the evening, absolutely zonked. I used to get the, the, the one-hour train journey back to Sussex. In the afternoons and and sort of fall asleep on the sofa after a big lunch, after a big late lunch. Um, It was just you'd do a massive track session in the morning, a really long, thorough warm up, about 30 or 40 of you, uh, massive track session, liquid lunch, a couple of pints of Coke and a packet of crisps into the gym for strength and conditioning, as we'd call it now, um, for an hour or so after lunch, uh, and then out on the track again for, or in the fields at the back of Crystal Palace then uh, for relays. And um, more sort of games that involved, um, like uh, wheelbarrow races, where you know somebody's down in the press up position, you pick up the legs and you you you, you race over twenty five yards and swap around <laughs> at the other end and come back, and tons of stuff that was good fun and competitive and you'd be laughing a lot, but was actually really good strength and conditioning work as well. So by the time you'd finished all of that, you you know it'd be four in the afternoon. Some of them would be climbing into the cars and driving home for three or four hours back to the West Country. And I, I had to get a, an hour and a half train journey back down Sussex then. Um, so it was great. And I think it, it laid a foundation for understanding how hard you can push yourself, because two big session running sessions in a day, plus what was effectively two strength and conditioning sessions in a day, is a hell of a lot of work. Um, and it made the days where you just got to go out for a seven-mile run. seem seemed pretty damn simple.
7: Hope you enjoyed that uh, best of episode from Athletics Life Stories. Um, We'll be rolling out more weekly pods through 2023. We've got some more great guests lined up. Um, And I hope you enjoyed it. Please tell your friends. Please spread the word. We've been really pleased with the way the content's come together. um, And the way athletes have really opened up to us as well. I've always felt that athletes are the gods and the goddesses of of, of sports. also i think through the course of this i've discovered that there are they have their, they're just human as well they have their vulnerabilities their insecurities um and it's just been wonderful to to hear athletes being so candid and honest uh, and talking about their careers um in, in a way that's um both relatable and very engaging so please tell your friends about athletic life stories and we look forward to producing more episodes hope you like it uh in 2023 happy new year
4: Thanks for listening to Athletic Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Sports Social Podcast Network.